0: Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Okay, awesome. So can we please open up our Bibles, if that's alright? the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 17. So first book in your New Testament, second half of your Bible chapter 17. As always, if you are kind of new to this Christian journey and you don't have a Bible yet, or you don't have one here today, our friends in the front here will give you a Bible. Just quickly put up your hand if you need one. There's a bookmark in it. It's already open at the passage we're going to be in today. So just quickly put up your hand if you need a Bible there, because here at Hatfield, we are passionate about the spirit and the word and the people of God. So friends, we are in a season called Move. And what's happened is this. Next month, the 23rd of Feb, we are launching the newest Doxodio campus in the family called Doxodio Hatfield, and we're excited about it. Yes, I'm working you up. Um, I'm paying here and there, people, but that's also all right. Um, You see, the Doxito family, over the last 25 years, we have this heart with every other church in the city and globally. We're saying that we want to do one simple thing. We want to raise up disciples, apprentices of Jesus that have a heart for the city. People who are following Jesus, who want to see the city transformed. And so last year, about a year ago, we started weekly services just across the road here at OM to see that we can plant a brand new campus, a brand new church here in Hatfield. And now we're finally at the place where it's not about starting. It's about celebrating the fact that God has done something already. And so I want to say the conversation's not starting, guys. We are only at the very beginning. But we sensed, and we shared this at our vision evening, under this umbrella of making disciples who've got a heart for the city, we said these are the four things that for this church, for Dr. Hatfield, if you're excited about these things, join us. So we said these four things. We said that we want to be a community for the community. We want to have a deep commitment to family, being in community together for the city. Secondly, we said this is so crucial that we want to be a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church, especially in a city like Pretoria that's still so divided amongst many different lines. We want to be a multi-ethnic church. Thirdly, we said that we want to have a heart for the unchurched and the de-churched, those who do not yet know Jesus. We want to know them, befriend them. We want to go and find them, and we want to know that they are known by Jesus. And fourthly, we said that as a church, we want to be passionate in our pursuit of Jesus. and everything we do, we want to be passionate in the way we do it in and for and behind and around Jesus. That is our heart. And we said if that stirs you, if that even frightens you a bit in a holy discontentment way, come and join us. But we realize, I don't know if you can see that. If you think, well, that's easy. We can easily do that. That's not the right church then for you. Because when I read these things, I think we can't do this. It's impossible. Some of these things are not humanly possible. So we sensed right at the beginning, and we've kind of been steering toward that at the end of last year, that we cannot do this. God will have to do it in us. It will have to be an inward out move. We can't plan and pep talk and slogan our way to get to these things, friends. It's not a natural thing. It will have to be a supernatural thing. So at the end of last year, this move season started, and now we're finishing it off with five sermons. Like I said, the conversation's only starting. So I'm starting five uncomfortable conversations with us about things that God will have to do in our hearts. He will have to come and afflict us in our comfort about five things that over the next couple of years, I know that we will become as a church. And last week, we said the first one, that God will have to come and move us in relationship and we were pretty much saying, God, will you move us in our belief that you can do incredible things in us? And today we're going to move into the second movement, saying, God, will you challenge us and move us in our belief that you can do great things through us? Will you move us in faith? So let me set the stage. I want to tell you <laughs> the crazy story about a young girl called Melissa Poe. So, in 1987. This young girl, Melissa Poe, in uh, Nashville, in the USA, she watches this documentary about global pollution, and she is so struck by it in all of her nine-year-oldness that she realizes, I need to do something about this. And she, what does she do? She writes a letter to the President of the United States of America, because she knows we need to get everyone involved. And she writes this letter to him, knowing that he's going to respond very soon, and then while she writes this letter to him, she says, now we need to start doing things at home front. So she mobilizes her, you know, her friends and her family and they start you know, closing down you know, the faucets when they're not using them and switching off the lights and recycling and doing all these kinds of things. And then she says, we, know, we need to get other people involved in the conversation. So she starts writing letters to local politicians, to her mayor, and to the states, you know, different institutions. She gets them involved. She starts writing to and connecting with the local TV station and the the newspaper and the radio station. She starts doing interviews with these people about these issues. She starts a little organization called Kids Face, Kids for a Clean Environment, because she realizes these little things we're doing, we need to do them with With everyone, we need to mobilize all these different kids around us so we can make a difference. Now in all of this, she's a bit frustrated because a couple of weeks have gone by and the President of the United States has not written back to her. Can you believe it? She's like, is this guy busy or why has he not written back to her? So with that frustration, she realizes probably what's missing is this letter of hers is not big enough. It's not getting onto his desk. That's the reason. So she says, I need to get my letter bigger. So she goes and she writes to, she connects with a billboard company. And she says, I need to get a big letter. That's what I need. So she goes to this company and they say, okay, we'll help you. And in fact, we'll sponsor you. And they sponsor in Nashville, this massive billboard of her letter and they put it up. But she realizes, listen, that's great. But the president lives in Washington, DC. He's not going to see this billboard. So we need to go bigger. We need to think bigger than that. And they say, well, we based in you know, Nashville. We can't help you with that, but we can connect you with some other billboard companies. And within a couple of months, more than 200 billboards have been now put up all over the United States of America, at least one in every single state, and yes, one within one kilometer of the White House, where the president of the United States of America resides. And now, finally... When the United States president wants to and does write back to this young girl, guess what? She doesn't need it anymore. Because now young Melissa Poe, all of nine years old, is regularly on national television because she is now speaking about this issue. And Kids Face, Kids for a Clean Environment has exploded suddenly. Suddenly. It started with six friends of hers in a little primary school and now it has ballooned to 2,000 local chapters with half a million members in 22 countries all around the world. Who needs the president when you have Melissa Poe? And so at the age of 17, She decides, I need to hand over the reins of this organization. She steps onto the board of Kids Face, and she hands over leadership of this organization to two 15-year-olds because she says, I'm now too old to lead this organization because this organization needs to always be in the hands of children because it has to be for kids and by kids. And then 20 years on, on the 4th of June 2009, almost 20 years to the day that she wrote this letter, To the President of the United States, Melissa Poe, now married, studied, the whole deal. She is receiving this incredible reward. Um, It's called the Woman of Distinction Award from the American Association, University of Women, and the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators. And acknowledging this honor, listen to what she says to the leaders in the audience that night. This is so amazing. She says this. She says, change does not begin with someone else. She says, change begins in your own backyard. No matter your age or your size, I had no idea that one simple action could change my life so much. You never know where one step will take you. And you never know where the next one will lead. The difference with being a leader is that you take the step. That you take the journey. The greatest obstacle that you will ever encounter is yourself. (laughs) Don't you just love that? Don't you just love the tenacity and the forwardness and the nine-year-oldness of this little girl? (laughs) And what strikes me about this, you ask me, what does this have to do with church? It has everything to do with the church. Because you know what's this story, what the core of it is is this little girl sees a huge issue. I mean huge. It is the issue that world leaders and organizations with billions of dollars at their disposal and governments and think tanks are throwing all their resources into at the moment, pollution and climate change, all of them are wrestling with this 800-pound gorilla and this nine-year-old little girl looks at it and she does not say that's someone else's issue. She says, that's my issue. And can I tell you that for 2,000 years, the Christian church has been the greatest organization for change on the, on the planet because it has had the Melissa Poe posture of looking at the spaces and places that it's walked in. Every single city or town or space that it's been in, the church of Jesus Christ has said, that is our issue. That is not someone else's issue. Change will begin in our backyard. And whenever the church has forgotten that mandate given to us by Jesus, we become the Sunday social club that loves to get together once a week and very critically moan about the fact the city and the country and the people and the government and the politicians and and that's what we become. We become one of the sticking points for change in the country and it was never meant to be so. No, we have always been called to be the hands and the feet of God on this earth, to be the salt and the light. We have always been called to be the Melissa Pose of the world. We have always been called to be stirred in faith. Now, let me show you what that looks like. How do we get there? Read with me Matthew 17. Jesus just comes down from the mountain. He's just taken his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain. He's had this very strange experience, the transfiguration. He's just been shining literally in glory. It's been life-changing for them. They come down the mountain. This crowd is around them, and then this happens. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long was I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed... You will tell this mountain, here's our phrase for the day, move from here to there and it will what? It will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, that's worth repeating. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We have been saying that in this series, there are moments in the journey of the Christian faith and God with his people that we cannot make it move. We cannot do it from the outside in. God has to do it from the inside out. He has to move us. And this is a moment like that. And so every week we said we have a statement that we need to internalize. Last week it had to do with the kind of relationship that God wants to have in us. Here it is. We're going to end with it again. God, will you move us? Jesus, Jesus. Will you move us in faith to see the lost pain and brokenness of our city, see you as the solution, and see ourselves as your hands and feet? Can we just read that together again? Just let that sink into your spirit, then we are can unpack it for a couple of minutes. Jesus, will you move us in faith as Doxedo Hatfield, as individuals, as couples, as people together here today, to see the last pain, and brokenness of our city, see you as the solution and see ourselves as your hands and feet. God, you will have to do this in us. So what does faith do? Faith does three things. Let's use the time we have to unpack that. Faith, it changes. It moves in us the way we see our city. It moves the way we see Jesus. And it moves the way that we see ourselves. Let's look at that. Faith, firstly... It changes. It redefines the way we see our city. So read with me in your Bible there. Mark verse 14. It says, when they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him and he said, Lord, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and he suffers terribly. He suffers terribly. Man, the The language here is so intentional. You can see Matthew is straining to try and and make this vivid for us. This is such a desperate moment. This father is not willy-nilly coming to Jesus. This father has tried everything. This father is desperate. This father loves his son. This father would give anything for his son. This father has no other place to go. This father is at the end of his rope. This is such a heart-wrenching moment. And look at how Jesus responds. I think these are probably of the most harsh words that Jesus speaks to his own disciples in his whole ministry. He says, You unbelieving and perverse generation. Jeez, how long will I be with you? How how must I put up with you? Guys, that's harsh. When Jesus says that to you, it's like you get a day job again. You like you go back to doing whatever it is that you used to do. That's harsh. Why is he doing that? Is Jesus cranky? Like, did he not get his carbs in this morning? Like, is he doing intermittent fasting? Or what's happened here? Why is Jesus so harsh with his disciples in this moment? The reason is because Jesus has been confronted with the reality of the brokenness of this poor father. Dads, any dads, can you just for a second put yourself in this moment? Jesus sees this, and he sees this poor father, and the hurt, and the pain, and the heart-wrenching brokenness, and what does he see right next to it? He sees the floundering disciples. They have just seen him literally being transfigured as the God-man Jesus. I mean, he was literally shining. One couple of verses ago, and now, I don't know why. Are they angry because he only took three of them? Are they in fighting again? Have they forgotten? Are they hungry again? Are they, I don't know what they're doing. But for some reason, now, even though Jesus commissioned them just a couple of chapters ago with his own authority to go and heal and set free and teach, now they can't do it again. And Jesus sees this poor father and he sees the kind of, you know, ten thumbs disciples and he is just like, Ugh! this is so difficult because this hurts this poor man is broken he confronts this issue and it's personal for Jesus so yes he says a harsh thing and I think to myself what about our city and the church of this city what are we confronted with and how do we react to it (laughs) What if we see this story from the perspective of the city and the church of Pretoria? Because see, Jesus in this moment does not keep this father's issue at arm's length. Because if you want to be callous toward an issue, you have to depersonalize people. There's a long thing you can go and read into about Nazi Germany. You, they had to depersonalize the Jewish people to hurt them as badly as they did. They had to see them as rats, Literally. But Jesus says, no, this is personal. It hurts. I'm with this Father in this moment. That's why it's so visceral and personal. The Doxa family has said that when we look at a city that we find ourselves in, let's look at Pretoria for a second. It's not buildings and concrete. It's not sinners and, you know, those people out there, and we are in the church, and we are great, and we sing the songs. No, we sing. It's personal for us. Our heart bleeds for this city this is our city it's not someone else's issue this is our issue this is our issue friends this is our issue and so we say if we make this city personal there are three things that our heart bleeds for that we will fight for that we will take bullets for that we will pray for run for plan for that we will do as a church Those three banners, by the way, say something about that. If you've missed it all the way in, all the way out of the last couple of months, three things that we say, if if Pretoria were a person, these are the three things that we think it needs desperately. Number one is spiritual lostness. At the core of what is breaking apart our city is that people don't know their father. People don't know Jesus. Jesus. So we've been saying that they are running after lesser gods to try and fulfill something that will never do it. Nothing else but God is made to serve as the true fulfillment and the true cornerstone of your identity, purpose, joy, and hope and truth. People are lost without Christ. There are people by the thousands, by the millions in the city probably in the greater Pretoria area, that do not yet know Jesus. And we say that's our issue. It's 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 no one else's issue. It's our issue. Secondly, a social pain. There are people around us, and yes, even in your own life, I'm not discounting that today, but that's not the conversation for today. There are people that live right next to you, just across from you, that work right next to you, that play right next to you. That there are deep pain in their life. There is maybe, there, there is a person right across from the street today who is hungry, who will not eat for the rest of this week probably. There is someone who is suffering intense physical abuse in their own house at this very moment that you know there is deep social pain in our city, and that's our issue. It's not the government's issue. It's not some NPO's issue. Thank Jesus for those institutions. It's the church's issue. And thirdly, there are systemic issues. It's not just that there are pockets of pain. There are whole systems that are broken. It's not just that there are racial instances between people, but there is racism in our city. There are educational systems that are broken, political brokenness, and that's our issue we can and should and will do something about it we are called by jesus to reach the lost and heal the pain and restore what's broken jesus says look at the language that he uses he uses these two metaphors that are that are so insignificant and so huge he says the mustard seed and the mountain the mustard seed and the mountain the mountain is a metaphor for something impossible it's impossible to move a mountain And Jesus says, when you look at your city, there are things that seem impossible. When I think about some of the things we're trying to do to bring true reconciliation between black and white and and pink and orange and yellow of every shade and background and color of our city, it, it seems emotionally impossible. Because only Jesus can do that. When I think about political brokenness, if you are keeping up to date with what's happening at the moment in Pretoria politically, it seems impossible. It's a mountain. Jesus says they will move if you have faith. He says you are called for that. It's not someone else's issue. It starts in your backyard. Melissa Post says leaders say it's us. City changers say it starts with us. And just a last thought and then we move on. Maybe you think all this social stuff, you know, social pain, systemic brokenness, aren't we just there for people to get to know Jesus? That's the most important thing. I'm with you. But the reality is very often when the church steps into those other spaces, then it's through that that people get to know Jesus. And often it's the other way around. I'm reading a book at the moment. The guy is a teacher of, he's a, he equips people that were formerly Muslims who are now Christians on a grand scale to go back into Muslim, predominantly Muslim countries to evangelize. He's called Abu Atala. And this is what he writes. Listen to this. Just fascinating. He says, in general, I urge the missionaries when they go into these Muslim majority countries to respect Islam and the Muslims without challenging their faith directly. Rather, I encourage them to show Christ's love to them in many different ways. This runs counter to the Western tendency to win arguments or to point out the flaws in other person's viewpoints. But that approach is often seen as an insult to most Muslims. And it almost never leads them to Christ. Showing them to love Christ in concrete ways. By inviting them to meals or showing care for them and their families is a far more fruitful strategy. Do you see that at the beginning of this passage, the father falls in front of Jesus and worships him. And yet there's a social need. That's exactly the same thing that happens with the Magi and the leper and the father of the deceased daughter. There's a social need, but they end up worshiping Jesus. Very often it is the social pain and the systemic brokenness that leads the church straight to the heart of spiritual lust. Friends, we are called to make this city our issue. It is our issue. The city is our issue. The city is our issue. And I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that as corporately as as Dr. Hatfield, do you have faith that God is capable and willing and able, that he's commissioned us to work powerfully through us to address these things in this city where you work and play? And do you believe, do you have faith that for you in your life, not just for us collectively, that in your life, in your marriage, in your work, in the way that you move and breathe in this city, that God will do this through you? Faith transforms the way you see the city. But secondly, it changes the way you see Jesus. That's what I see in this passage. That's the meat of this passage. It changes the way that we see Jesus. Let's just go back to that punch in the gut. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? Now that's harsh because the only other time he says something like that is in chapter 12 and beyond when he speaks to the Jewish elite. Who repeatedly, the Pharisee-like people, who repeatedly, after seeing Jesus healing and teaching and doing miracles, who every single time he does that. Don't get the idea that Jesus just hates them or something like that. That's not the case. The reason he has an axe to grind with the Jewish elite throughout his ministry is because they repeatedly see him doing things that are clearly from the kingdom of God. And what do they say? It's not. No ways. (laughs) That's not God. There's no ways. It's the devil. You from the devil, it's the devil's power, and you're not the Messiah, we, we, just, we just won't believe it. And what does he say to them? He says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. So he's comparing his own disciples to that venom that he almost keeps. We often think that Jesus has, or some people would think that God has this issue with the sinners, in inverted commas. He uses most of his harsh statements only on the religious elite, the people who are full of themselves, who think they are great. Why would he compare his own disciples in this one moment to people like that? It's because they are doing exactly what the religious elite were doing. They see Jesus and yet what? They don't trust him, follow him, or obey him. They see Jesus and yet they don't trust him, follow him, and obey him. They don't, in other words, what? Have faith in him. He says why? Because you don't have faith. Friends, we often think faith is the strange feeling you get when the worship is like right. It's like, whoa, the worship's awesome. Then you have faith. It's like that strange, like, goosebump feeling. That's faith. Or we think faith is when you take a really risky move in your life. That's faith. You know why are you doing this? I I just have faith. You know, the church, we're going to build a crazy, like, 40 million rand building. Why? Because we just have faith. Okay. Um, Or faith is... um, You know, it's, it's, it's when I just decide that God has said something to me, or it's when I frown really hard during times in the worship, that's faith. We've got all these different things. Or faith, maybe, is this energy out there in the universe. That's what faith is. And if I can harness the energy, or, you know, it's, you know, the Holy Spirit is like this force that I need just, I need to work him into my, you know, realm. And if I can just faith really hard, I'll get the house and the thing that I need. That's often how we describe faith. And we think, I just don't have enough faith in my life. I don't have enough emotion. I don't have enough energy or spirit or power or whatever that is. I don't take enough risks. I don't step out enough. I don't have enough faith. Can I challenge you this morning with what faith is in the Bible? I don't, some of those things are there. It's like 5% truth. But do you know what faith is most of the time in the Bible? Jesus points it out here. You know what faith is? Let me take you in one minute to the most famous chapter in the Bible on faith. Hebrews 11. You know how it starts? Some of you can even quote it to me. Hebrews 11 verse 1. If I asked you what is faith, some of you will quote me this scripture. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this. Now faith is the reality of what's hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. Isn't that beautiful? What does that mean? Some of you can quote it. What does that mean? I think so many Christians can quote that. They have absolutely no idea what it means. And that's fine. I'm not going to chastise you. I don't even think I know what it means a lot of the time. Let me show you what I think it means in this passage. Because rapid fire, what this passage does, it colors it in. Look at this. Next slide. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. By faith, Enoch, pleased God. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went when he was called. He went out, even though he didn't know where he was supposed to go. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith, Moses Chose to suffer with the people of God. He left Egypt behind. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace, etc., etc., etc. The whole of faith, as it's called, is a simple concept. God speaks, the people trust them, and they obey. That's it. Trust and obedience is faith. We're going to build the crazy building. Why? We have faith. No, you don't. That's just secular ambition. God did not say you should do that. I have a crazy feeling. It's faith. It's not faith. That's just the pizza from last night. I'm going to make you know, this, the, the energy of the universe bring the car into my garage. It's faith. That's not faith. That's the secret. That's a book you read a couple of years ago because Oprah said you should read it. No, faith, the Bible says, is when you see God, He speaks, and you simply obey and trust in Him. There's a reason why right after the Hall of Faith, the very next verse is verse 12, or chapter 12 is one that says, So let us run with endurance. That's a verb like all the other verbs. Why? The race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. The source and the perfecter of our faith. You know what faith is? It's keeping my eyes on Jesus and running. It's when he says something, I watch him and I do it. Why was Jesus a bit frustrated with his disciples? Because just before this, he's literally inflamed in glory. It's so crazy on the mountain that it says the disciples fall before him on their faces. It's so crazy. It's like fireworks moments. And right after that, they can't do the simple thing. Why? Because they've taken their eyes off him. It's not some, um, you know, it's not some supernatural thing. It's not some charismatic thing. It was a personal thing. That's why. Jesus calls them and he says, trust in me and obey me. It's faith. Faith changes the way that I see Jesus. He calls me to say, keep your eyes on me. Trust in me. I love the fact that the early church, it says this in Acts 1 about the early church. It just says they continually were united in prayer. Why would they continually pray? It's because they were just great prayers. They were just pious people who loved to be on their knees praying all the time. No, it's this. E.M. Barnes says, the faith. Which creates powerful praying is the faith which centers itself on a powerful person. That's why. They were convinced that Jesus is the reason why they should be praying. If he's powerful, we should be praying to him, worshiping him, focusing on him. Because him in us, that's the answer. When he gets into us, he will get out of us in my work. When he gets into me, he will get out of me in my in my marriage, in my parenting. Faith is simply obeying what Jesus says. I think of this multi-ethnic, multi-generational thing, and I think of our journey in Bloom, When we we didn't have even 2% of it figured out at all. But I think of stories like my friend Theo, who was punched by a guy, literally, of an opposing school, and that very same guy sat in a community group with him many years later, reconciled, arm around him, praying together. You know what happened? Jesus happened. I think about Reginald, the black guy, medical student in our community group, never been with people from a different culture and a different even economic strata. In our community group, hanging out together, first person ever in his whole family to go to university. You know what happened? Jesus happened. I think of Song Hoon Kim, Chinese medical student who comes to our alpha course on campus, gets saved in our worship team, on stage, worshiping Jesus. You know what happened? Jesus happened to him. I think of Hope, (laughs) black guy in our church who said in a testimony moment, no white person has ever been good to him in South Africa, ever. And he pitches up to church and God changes his life. You know what happened? Jesus happened to him. I think of Brian and Wendy in their late 70s, relationship with an architecture faculty member at the university, deeply rooted atheist. Over two years of relationship, he comes to know Jesus. You know what happened to him? You know what happened to them together? Jesus happened to them. He comes to know Christ. I think of Yumi. Her mom passes away. Her dad is... Pretty much absent in her life. And an older couple in our church, multi generational, says, We will take responsibility for this young kid. They put her through high school, they put her through university. Today she's got a degree, she's a fisher, she's married. You know what happened there? Jesus happened there. That's multi generational. I think of Fifi from Lesotho. He said, you know, she said she hated a time at Blum because she had no people. She had nothing there. And then her last two years, she was in community with us. And when we multiplied, we had this big dinner before the group split up. And then she stood up and she said, you know what? I am really not looking forward to going back to Lesotho because these people have become my people. You know what happened there? Jesus happened there. I think finally of Beloved who Shay spoke with last night, who's overseas now. They had a Skype call. And our kids, she's a young black lady who came into our family and she walked the road with us. I'm not saying all these things are perfect, but our kids, we couldn't even pronounce her name at one stage, our young kids just called her Tunny Lovard. You know what happened there? Jesus happened there. And I look at our city and I think multi-ethnic and I think generations and I think lost and pain and broken and I think the things are happening in politics and education, I think your work and your family and your marriage and your pain and brokenness and stuff happening in our lives and I think, God, how will this happen? I think Jesus will have to do this. Do you have faith that he can do this? Do you have faith that he can do this through us? Do you have faith that he can do this through our church, through the church? Because I believe there are so many churches this morning where people are going to church, together as the church, and then go home, and it's done. Friends, that's not the church that we want to be. So i want to finish off. I'm going to skip that final one. Maybe the worship team can join me. Jesus he redefines how we see ourselves. you know how He does that? Because it's so striking. <laughs> they can't heal this poor guy. It's impossible. And this difference between, "I brought him to the disciples, they could do nothing. Bring him to me. He's healed like that. It's not even difficult. But the passage doesn't end there, because then it would mean we are just we know. We can't do anything. The passage doesn't end there. The passage ends with Jesus saying to his disciples, Nothing will be impossible for you. For you. Do you hear that this morning? Nothing will be impossible for you, my church. That's in the plural, my disciples. That means that a church can be a great church, it can be a city changing church, a world changing church. If it will agree that without Jesus, it's nothing. But with Jesus, it is everything. That's the kind of church that we want to be. Can I ask you this morning? Do you simply have faith to have a Sunday attending church? Do you have a Sunday attending faith? Or do you have a lost finding, pain healing, brokenness restoring, city changing faith? Because that's what I think Jesus has for us. So can we stand together this morning? I believe God wants to stir in us the kind of faith that would look at the city differently, that would look at Jesus differently, and that would look at us and hear Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. That would hear him saying, I have commissioned you, I am within you. That would not hear, yes, without me, you can do nothing, but would hear, I am with you and with me. I am that faith within you. Nothing will be impossible for you, my church. That with you, the Melissa Poe heart, it's our issue. So let's read this together once again, and then we're gonna worship. Jesus, will you move us in faith? to see the loss, the pain, the brokenness of our city, see you as the solution and see ourselves as your hands and feet. Jesus, we pray this morning. God, may we be deeply dependent on you and may we trust you and be obedient to you and be excited about the fact that you've called us, equipped us, commissioned us, filled us with your spirit. Every sphere of your city for your glory and for the good of us.